Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Father, we ask you to give us an understanding of the life of faith today. Give wisdom to your people, Lord, to know how to enter into the supernatural aspect of Christianity uh, and receive answers, miraculous answers from you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to talk to you today about escaping the beast of double-mindedness. You got it. All right. Now, many Christians believe that we should trust in methods and means of man because now God's weaker than he was in the Bible (laughs) and needs our help. Uh, How foolish. Uh, However, We are in the midst of many Christians who believe this, but are finding out that many are dying because they trusted in man's vaccines, which are proven to be a depopulation effort by the beast. According to uh, JAMA, J-A-M-A, the Journal of American Medical Association, 450,000 people a year die of iatropic causes. Uh, Iotropic means doctor and medicine-related causes. And that was long before the shots that are sickening and killing so many people. Um, If he now uses man's methods, how many mistakes does God make? He never failed in the Bible, never once. He always healed using only the method Jesus showed, right? The people are dying of many diseases from taking the shots, which cause the loss of their immune system. And so it's hard to trace it back to the COVID shot because it's all a bunch of diseases killing people. Um, Deaths are still rising geometrically, and they will be for years. Jesus and his disciples didn't use means and methods of man. In fact, We're warned in Jeremiah 17 and 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man, and maketh the flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Well, truly it is, because it's a departing from faith, really. Uh, So let's, I want to examine some objections to this that people use, okay? And then we'll support it even more. I was sent this question in an email. Quote, My question is the verse in 1 Timothy 5.23 where Paul advises Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. 
God hadn't healed him, and I'm confused about your teaching on healing, unquote. Well, the, Christ, the question really is about whether God heals using remedies or simply through faith. Uh, and that's without man's efforts. And, of course, this is, Jesus did this and demonstrated this, so did his disciples, in order to demonstrate that all glory goes to God, not to man. Um, Jesus spoke to his disciples in parables and symbols that they came to understand, and they became ways for them to speak to others. We use that, too, symbolism sometimes, because everybody knows what we're talking about when we use it. Uh, here's an example uh, in 1 Timothy 5.23. Sin is the subject before and after the verse in question. And that is, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Uh, and then often infirmities, okay? 1 Timothy 5.23. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Lay hands hastily on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Be no longer a drinker of water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Okay, the word infirmities here is the Greek word asthenia, and it means weaknesses. That's easy to prove. Verse 24, I'll read on. Some men's sins are evident, so you see the, the context here is about sin. Uh, and this is plopped right in the middle of it, like, that, how does that fit, you know? <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Uh some men's sins are evident, going before unto judgment, and some men also follow after. In like manner also, these are good works. Uh, there are good works that are evident, and such are otherwise cannot be hid. Uh, the wine for the stomach statement is certainly out of context unless it speaks of deliverance from sin. Okay. Uh, the word uh, translated infirmities is actually the word weaknesses, which is clearly seen in other texts where the same exact word is used in the Greek. Here, translated 1 Corinthians 1.25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The weakness of God? That's the same word. Well, now we know that God is not infirm or sick, so this word has to be weakness because he is weak sometimes. Uh, he's, he does, uh, well, for instance, 2 Corinthians 13 and 4 says, for he was crucified through weakness. Again, the same word. He wasn't crucified through sickness or infirmity. Yet he liveth through the power of God, for we also are weak in him. We're supposed to be the kind of weak that God is, okay? And we shall live with him through the power of God toward you. So we know that Jesus Christ was not crucified through infirmity, but weakness. It's the word there, clearly. Uh, he would not defend himself when he was brought before Pilate, 
and the Jewish leaders. Um, and in this way, he was weak. Timothy uh, had spiritual weaknesses for which the only cure was the spiritual wine, right? Okay, watch. The stomach or belly was spiritually considered the seat of rulership for the carnal man. It represents being driven by the lusts. Um, Greek word, of course, is desires, right? The lusts of the flesh, driven by sin. Okay, Philippians 3.19 says, Whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly. Okay, this belly represents the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, right? And whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. They walk by sight, right? And not by faith. On the other hand, wine was considered the cure for bondage to sin, which is what the context is speaking about. And wine represents the blood of Jesus, does it not? Mm -hmm. Matthew 26 and 27 says, And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks and gave to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. Mm -hmm. But I say unto you, I shall not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, notice uh, Jesus equates the wine with his blood. So, this is the spiritual cure for the lusts of the flesh. Through our own blood, we have inherited the lusts of sinful flesh. And through Jesus' pure blood, that nature is destroyed. And Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement by reason of the life. In other words, His blood replacing our blood gives us his life, his nature. So his blood is in us to the extent that we repent and partake of the life of his word. John 16 and 53 says, Jesus therefore said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have not life in yourselves. So we can't have life any other way than to partake of his blood, which is the wine, right? He that eateth my flesh, and he was the word made flesh, so the word is talking about the flesh here, and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You're partaking of the nature of Jesus. We are to walk in the steps of Jesus. His blood is our blood now. It replaces our parents' blood who passed on to us the Adamic nature of sin. And he goes on to say, I will raise him up at the last day. We ought to partake of the nature of Jesus. 
So partaking of the blood or wine is a matter of walking in his word by faith in his blood that was given to us. 1 John 1 and 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There you see it. The blood or the wine is the cure for our sin. Okay. And uh, for Timothy's sake, he was telling him that for his belly's sake, which is the old lust nature, he needed to partake of this wine. Right. Okay, there's another common misunderstanding, and it's Paul's thorn. Very easily understood things if you just do a little research, you know. Paul was caught up to the third heaven, and he received wonderful revelations that tempted him to be proud. 2 Corinthians 12 and 7 says, And by reason of the exceeding greatness of the revelations, that I should not be exalted over much, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger. Oh, that's the Greek word angelos. It's translated angel in other places. Huh. So, a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan to buffet me that I should not be exalted over much. There it is. He didn't say a sickness. He said it was a demon. So Paul says that the thorn was an angel of Satan to buffet him. It didn't say it was a sickness or an infirmity. The word uh, buffet means to hit over and over. Uh, and you can see that this evil spirit was given to Paul to fulfill God's purpose of humbling him. 2 Corinthians 12 and 8. Concerning this thing, I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he has said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Yes, we need to be weak. We need to resist our own strength, the strength of the flesh, the strength of man, if we want to see God's power, because his power is perfect, perfected in our weakness. So this angel of Satan was bringing about a humbling in Paul's life that God called grace. <laughs> and when Paul was in a position of personal weakness or inability to save himself, he got to see the power to save. Many people will not come to this place of weakness and deny their flesh. Uh, they've been trained from little on up to save themselves, and these are the methods everybody says, you know, but the worldly way is not God's way, and it wasn't all through the Scriptures. Okay. And it should be the same with us, that, uh, that we would be weak to uh, work salvation out by our works. Okay. And so God's power could do it freely. So the scriptures are full of instances where God purposely brought people such as Moses and Abraham and Jehoshaphat and Gideon and Lazarus to a position of human weakness so that he could perform a miracle to save them and no one would get the credit but him. Paul understood this, 2 Corinthians 12 and 10. 
Wherefore, I take pleasure in weaknesses. Hmm. The King James Version uses the word infirmities, but I just showed you that that's not possible, that this is infirmities. Or else God is infirm, and Jesus is infirm. <laughs> no. So, wherefore, I take pleasure in weaknesses, in injuries, which some put insults in the place of, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Look at this. God put him in positions of being weak against the enemy so that God could be strong against the enemy. And everybody would know it was God and not man. Thorn in the flesh is mentioned four other times in the scriptures. And not once is it an infirmity? This word weaknesses is from the Greek word asthenia, meaning want of strength or weakness. The King James Version translated this word infirmities, but the same Greek word in many other places, including this text, is translated weak or weaknesses, like uh, 1 Corinthians 1 25, 2 Corinthians 11 29. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9 and verse 10 and 2 Corinthians 13 and 4. The same Greek word, asthenia, in the following uh, two verses shows us that infirmity is a bad translation. 1 Corinthians 1.25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now we know God is not infirm or sick, so this word has to be weaknesses. And 2 Corinthians 13 and 4, For he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth through the power of God. For we also are weak in him. That's right. But we shall live with him through the power of God. So if you want to see the power of God, you have to be weak. Salvation is not by your works. God will not permit it. And that's why many fail. They don't understand this principle. And we know that Jesus Christ was not crucified through infirmity, but weakness. He was weak in that he would not defend himself when he was brought before Pilate and the Jewish leaders. So likewise, we are crucified when we are weak to save ourselves while we trust in God. And in the previous chapter, Paul lists what he calls weaknesses. Okay, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 30, he lists them. And what does he list? Does he list any infirmity? No. He lists such things as shipwrecks, prisons, persecutions from enemies, stripes. Not once does Paul mention sickness in the list. And the point is that God uses evil angels to come against our lusts, to humble us, to chasten us, and to cause us to be in a place of weakness so that we have to trust in Him. Amen. And this is, of course, repentance. 2 Corinthians 12 and 8. Concerning this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it, that is the angel of Satan or the demon, might depart from me. And he has said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. So God was saying, 
that he would deliver Paul from the individual buffetings, but not from the angel of Satan, at least for the time being. I mean, he was doing a work in Paul, you know. Uh, and Paul said the same thing to Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy 3.11, persecutions, sufferings, what things befell me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Oh, ho, ho. it was God whose power came and delivered him in his weak places where the enemy was much stronger or the trouble was much greater than he could handle, right? In 2 Timothy 4 and 18, he said, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work. Now you see his faith. He didn't say that this would not come because it came as a buffeting, but he did say he would deliver him from it. And he did. In this, we see that the sovereignty of God in both bringing the chastening and supplying the deliverance. Even though he permits buffetings to test us, ultimately, he will heal and deliver the faithful. Amen? So the question as to whether God always heals is a moot one when we realize that he has already healed all believers. But, we must be believers. 1 Peter 2.24 Who his own self bear our sins in his body upon the tree, that we having died unto sins might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. It was already done. Do you believe it? Well, what happens if you believe it? Well, you can cease worrying about it. Cease trying to save yourself. But you've got to believe it. We're not talking about legalism here. We're talking about faith. That's different. Jesus gave us a, an example uh, by healing all believers that came to him by faith. Jesus And so did his disciples had the same experience, right? And Jesus said in Mark 11 and 24, quote, All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe that ye receive and the Greek word here is received them. Even in the received text, it says that. It has a footnote, received. It's past tense. Believe that ye received them, and you shall have them. Well, we received them because all of our provision was accomplished at the cross. Notice in some verses that all things have been received and that the only thing left for us to do is to believe it and cease from our own salvation by works. Notice the past tense of all of our sacrificial provision in the following verses. Ephesians 2 and 8. For by grace have ye been saved through faith. 1 Peter 2.24 who his own self bear our sin in his body upon the tree, that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Colossians 1 and 13, Who delivered us, past tense, out of the power of darkness, and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. 2 Corinthians 5 and 18, Who reconciled us to himself, past tense, Galatians 2.20, 
I have been crucified with Christ, past tense, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. It's past tense. Galatians 3 and 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse, <laughs> past tense. We don't have to ask God and beg God and all this. All we got to do is believe what he said. That means repent, change your mind, believe what he said. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse. Already, it's done. It's accomplished. We're to believe it. 1 Peter 1 and 3, The Father begat us again, past tense, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 and 10, We have been sanctified, <laughs> past tense. 14, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Past tense. Ephesians 1 and 3. Who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Past tense. And God, in 2 Peter 1 and 3, hath granted unto us all things. Past tense. Jesus told us in his day, which, of course, is also in the past, that now shall the prince of this world be cast out. It's accomplished. That's how we have power in faith, is we believe the promise and we speak in agreement with it. With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Right? Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. It happened at the cross. John 12 and 31, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Don't worry about overcoming the world. Jesus already did it for you. You just uh, abide in him and it will come to pass. And you abide in him by faith, right? John 16 and 33, it is finished. <laughs> uh, yeah. John 19 and 30. So this is why we are to believe we have received. That's why Jesus said that. The devil and the curse were conquered. We were saved, healed, delivered, and provided for 2,000 years ago. So, if we believe that we have received, would we continue to try to save, heal, or deliver ourselves? No, because if you do that, you proved you did not believe you received. <laughs> you see? So, faith without works is dead. When your works prove that you don't believe, does that faith work? Will that faith save you? No. That's why people fail to receive from God. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. They're not believing. Quote, as the scripture hath said. Amen. So, redemption from the curse is truly finished. In fact, God's Works were finished from the foundation of the world, Hebrews 4 and 3. And when he spoke the plan into existence at the cross, the only thing left is for the true sons of God to enter into those works by faith, believing that they have received. Since the works are finished, we should believe and rest from our own works to save, heal, and deliver ourselves. 
Hebrews 4 and 3 says, For we who have believed do enter in to that rest. He's talking about a rest from your works. If you believe that you received it, you can rest from your works. God will do the rest. Why does God not do the rest for so many people? Because they do not believe as the Scripture hath said. So this rest he's talking about is a spiritual Sabbath rest from our own self-works. It off, comes off of the type in the shadow of the Old Testament rest. But this one's an everyday rest. It is not a one-day rest. Hebrews 4 and 9, There remaineth therefore a Sabbath rest uh, for the people of God. What? Yes, there is a Sabbath rest left. It's not according to the types and the shadows. Okay, it is a fulfillment of the types and shadows. There remaineth therefore a Sabbath rest. What is the Sabbath rest? The Greek word here is sabbatismos, the only one in the Bible. And it means a keeping of rest or a continual rest. Yes. Well, but what from what? From our own works. Saving ourselves from our own, by our own works, right? So this constant keeping of rest every day through the past tense promises is our New Testament spiritual Sabbath. For, for he that hath entered into his rest hath himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So this rest is to believe these past tense promises so that we know we don't have to save ourselves. Now, you can't make a law out of this because you will fail. This has to be faith. You can ask God for faith so that you enter into this by faith, but you can't enter into this by your works or by peer pressure or because some preacher tells you to. You have to enter into it by faith. Okay. Hebrews 4 and 1 says, Let us fear, therefore, lest haply a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. We have to rest. If we don't rest, God doesn't work. His power is made perfect in weakness, which comes from our rest, our ceasing from our own works. Verse 2, For indeed we have had good tidings preached unto us, even as also they, but the word of hearing did not profit them, because it was not united by faith with them that heard. You see, all these promises of God, if you don't unite them with faith, they're useless. You will not see the power of God. And as long as you're trying to, hard to save yourself, to the extent, let me say, that you are trying to save yourself, to that extent, God backs off. He's more merciful with the ignorant and the young than he is with people who have read the word and know what it says, and they're just ignoring it. Okay? Our faith in each of these promises brings us into more of the rest. For example, if we believe that by his stripes you were healed, then we will not keep seeking a healing, but will rest accepting that it was accomplished at the cross. We can start praising the Lord and thanking the Lord. Oh, thank you, Jesus. 
I've got this already. I don't have to look for it. I don't have to pay anybody for it because it's free. That's what grace is. Unmerited, unearned favor. If you're paying for it, let me tell you, you missed God. So this is true faith and always brings the answer. Through believing the promises, we enter into the rest from our own works. For a child of God to say that they believe that they have received and yet continue seeking to receive, usually through worldly methods, is to be double-minded. James 1 and 6 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. For he that doubteth is like the surge of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Do you want to walk in the steps of Jesus? Then follow his example. He showed you how to heal the sick. He showed you how to cast out demons. He showed you how to do this without any effort from man or paying any man to do this for you, right? So those who continue to work for what God has freely given believe in salvation by works, even though they say they don't. Yeah. Hebrews 4 and 10, For he that is entered into his rest hath himself also rested from his works. Hebrews 3 and 19, and we see that they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. They weren't able to rest from their works because they did not believe the promises as stated. Since the promises of deliverance from the curse are past tense, when we believe them, we must stop working. It's an evil heart of unbelief to not rest. God was angry with Israel because they would not believe his word in their trial in the wilderness. Hebrews 3, 8 through 10. Here's three, Hebrews 3, 11. As I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. <laughs> uh, take heed, brethren, lest happily there shall be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. And verse 14. We are become partakers of Christ. In other words, his health, his holiness, and his blessing. If we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. So, you can't be double-minded. When you start believing, you have to continue to believe. If you stumble and uh, you know, give in to the thoughts of the devil uh, or the works of man, you can call out to God. And tell him you're sorry and go back to believing him and trusting in him. When we believe that we have received, we are put in a position of weakness because we cannot do anything to bring the desired result to pass. Or we prove that we didn't believe and receive, right? So this weakness is our wilderness experience because there's no help from Egypt or the world. Only God's power saves in the wilderness. God says, My power is made perfect in weakness. 
You want to see more of the power of God? Be more weak. You want to see less of the power of God? Be less weak. Do it yourself. Take care of it. Well, God backs off when you say you're going to take care of it and you handle it. Well, he just backs off and lets you do it. To the extent that you are weak, to that extent, he will be strong. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. Our weapon against our enemies who try to talk us out of our covenant rights is the two-edged sword of these past tense promises. Hebrews 4, 11 and 12. We're justified by faith and not works, which is being proven day by day. Do you hear the ambulances going by your house with their sirens on? When have you ever heard that like that time after time after time? What do you think is happening? And why are they covering it up? Hmm. I want to say something else um, that I think will be very encouraging to you. There's a way to make it through this. And um, there was a brother back in the time of um, Romans 16. Uh, His name was Hermas. It's very possible that he's the one that received this revelation. Uh, It was just a few years after the book of Revelation was written that... um, he got this revelation. It was called the Shepherd of Hermas. And at that time, of course, um, they were going into tribulation. And he was given a warning. I mean, the church, the people of God, were headed into a tribulation. And he was given a warning that he was told to send to the churches. And uh, it's, it's not part of the Bible. It used to be, as a matter of fact, people thought it was part of the Bible. I don't believe that it is. I just believe that it's a very good revelation that's given an encouragement, an exhortation to the, to the Scriptures, uh, to obey the Scriptures and submit. I, I believe it's that. I believe it's very good. And um, I think that since he was exhorting the church who was about to go into tribulation, that some of the things are very pertinent to us at this time, because that's exactly where we are. And I know that God preserved this through the centuries in order to give it to us. Uh, again, it's not, it's not the level of inspiration that the Scriptures are, but it's very good, and it's anointed, and it was given of the Lord. Just like if God would give you a vision, or just like uh, Gene Fahey's vision about um, the great tree that was cut down in Babylon, you know, God can give you one that's concerning your your immediate future. Because, you know, God speaks in general ways in the Scriptures, but He really doesn't tell you about your immediate future and where you're fitting in and where you are at the time and what is your signpost at the time. So that's what dreams and visions are for, is to give us these revelations. Well, anyway, God gave to Hermas an awesome revelation. Actually, it's one of my favorite outside of the Scriptures. Okay? And um, I'm going to read part of it to you because it's concerning coming tribulation and what to do about it and how he escaped it. Okay, this is um, uh, Vision 4. It's a vision of the church, and it's called the tribulation to come. That which I saw, brethren, 20 days after the previous vision had occurred was a foreshadowing of the tribulation to come. I was going into the country by the Via Campana. The place is about 6,000 feet 
from the public thoroughfare and is easily reached. Now, I don't think anything in here, like kind of like the Bible, nothing in here is really in there by accident. 6,000 feet from the public thoroughfare. You know, I wrote a little note in the edge of this book. I said, off the road since Adam. <laughs> They're off the public thoroughfare 6,000 feet. And actually, we're, we're uh, 6,000 years off the off the road since Adam. So, and here comes the beast, you know. So this is a, kind of a symbol of the timing to us, too. The place is about 6,000 feet from the public thoroughfare and is easily reached. So as I was walking along by myself, I asked the Lord that the revelation and vision which he had shown me through his holy church might be completed so that he might strengthen me and give repentance to his servants who had been led astray, in order that his great and glorious name might be glorified, because he regarded me worthy to show me his wonders. And as I was glorifying him and giving him thanks, something like the sound of a voice answered me, Be not double-minded, Hermas. And I began to reason with myself and to say, how can I be double-minded when I've been made so secure by the Lord and have been and have seen such glorious things? And you think you would think that, but um, actually, you get into situations and you do things that you you don't uh, think you would. And that's where Hermas is headed right here. He said, "And as I walked on a little, brethren, and behold, I saw a cloud of dust reaching, as it were, up to heaven." And I began to say to myself, Are there not cattle coming, raising a cloud of dust? And it was about 600 feet away from me. There's that six again. Six, six. And the next verse, by the way, is six. <laughs> and it was about 600 feet away from me. When the dust cloud be, uh, became greater and greater, I suspected it was something divine. The sun shone more brightly for a moment, and behold, I saw a huge beast, something like a sea monster, and out of its mouth were coming fiery locusts. Sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? <clears throat> you know, locusts devour the grass, don't they? Locusts, there it is, this huge beast is about to devour much flesh. Huh? And the beast was about a hundred feet in length. And it had a head like a jar. I thought, I made a little note, a hundred feet in length re represents the fullness of the scope of this beast. And do you know, we've, we've read in scriptures um, that this beast is actually everyone who is outside of Christ. It is actually every, the whole lost world, the whole um, beastly kingdom of this world coming together into one, like they were at the Tower of Babel, right? Once again, the whole world is joining together in order to oppose God. So, a hundred feet is, I, I took to mean a hundred percent. The scope of this beast is a hundred percent of all lost humanity. Everyone whose spirit does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in their flesh <laughs> is this beast. <clears throat> and I began to cry and to beseech the Lord to save me from it. And I remembered the word which I had heard. Be not double-minded, Hermas. So brethren, being clothed in the faith of God, and remembering the great things he had taught me, taking courage, I entrusted myself to the beast. 
and the beast came on with a rush as if it could destroy a city. I drew near to it, and the sea monster, great as it was, stretched itself out on the ground and did nothing but thrust out its tongue, and did not move at all until I had gone by it. And the beast had four colors on its head, black, then the color of fire, and blood, and then gold, and then white. And after I had passed by the beast, and had gone on about thirty feet, behold, a young lady met me, adorned as if coming from a bridal chamber, all in white, and with white sandals, veiled up to her forehead. And her head covering was a snood, but she had white hair. And I knew from my previous visions that she was the church, obviously the called out ones, right? And I became more cheerful. She greeted me, saying, How do you do, friend? And I greeted her in return. How do you do, madam? She answered me and said, Did nothing meet you? I said to her, Madam, a beast so great as could destroy entire peoples. But by the power of the Lord and by his great compassion, I escaped it. And it's only right that you escape, she said, because you cast your burden upon God. And you opened your heart to the Lord, believing that you could not be saved by anything but the great and glorious name. Isn't that interesting, folks? There are so many people that are expecting to provide for themselves, to save themselves, to defend themselves. And yet, here the revelation says that you can't be saved by anything except by the name of the Lord. It is only our faith in Him that will bring us to the place where we can escape this great beast that's coming. Only by faith in Him. And therefore, the Lord sent his angel, who has authority over beasts, whose name is Thegri, and he shut its mouth, so it might not hurt you. You escaped a great tribulation because of your faith, and because, when you saw so great a beast, you did not become double-minded. Go then and tell the elect of the Lord about his great deeds, and say to them that this beast is a foreshadowing of the great tribulation to come. If then you prepare yourselves in advance and repent with all your heart before the Lord, you will be able to escape it. For if your heart becomes pure and blameless and you serve the Lord blamelessly the rest of the days of your life. What tribulation was he talking about that was immediately in their future? Well, there was the, the great harlot of Rome and the Roman beast um, that was going to slaughter the people of God. And uh, as you know, the church that they raised up, the Catholic Church, heavily persecuted people who were people of faith and uh, killed many. So they were heading into very much the same kind of a tribulation that we are. Uh, apostate Christianity um, with a new Roman beast, a worldwide Roman beast, uh, is going to persecute the saints. Well, there was a way to escape it. Is for, she said, the church, the called out ones, uh, preaching the good news here. Um, if your heart becomes pure and blameless and you serve the Lord blamelessly the rest of the days of your life, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will set them straight. 
have faith in the Lord, you who are double-minded, because he can do all things, and turn his wrath from you, and send out plagues to you who are double-minded. Interesting. Will God do that? Yes, he will. He will plague the double-minded, and uh, deliver his people, who are the faithful, who are the believers, who are the disciples. Woe to those who hear these words and disobey. It would have been better for them not to have been born. Chapter 24. I asked her about the four colors that the beast had on its head. And she answered me and said, Again, you are inquisitive about such things. Yes, madam, I said. Make known to me what they are. Listen, she said, the black is this world in which you live. The color of fire and blood means it is necessary for this world to be destroyed by blood and fire. <clears throat> and the gold part is you who have fled this world, for just as gold is tested by fire and becomes useful, so also you who live among those people are being tested. Yes, we are. God purposely put us here in the midst of the wicked to be tested and tried, to see if we will be faithful to his word. Many cannot, because they have more respect for the world, more fear of the world, more love of the world. They cannot be faithful to God. So, hence the exhortation to... to um, be blameless and pure, and turn to God in everything. Those then who endure are made red hot by them, and are made red hot by them, are purified. For just as gold casts off its dross, so also you will cast off all grief and distress, and you will be purified and be useful in the construction of the tower. The tower is, of course, the, the tower of God's people. He's speaking about here, and there's a revelation of it, and it's an awesome revelation about the stones that went into this tower, you know, and how that some of them were um, cracked, and some of them were defaced, and how that um, they were being perfected to be put in this tower of um, God's Zion. And the white part is the age which is to come, in which the elect of God will live, because those who have been chosen by God for eternal life will be spotless and pure. So speak constantly in the hearing of the saints. You have also the foreshadowing of the great tribulation which is to come. And if you so wish, it will be nothing. Notice that. If you so wish, it will be nothing. If you prepare, if you draw close to the Lord, if you repent, if you determined to be blameless and pure by faith in God's promises and in His Word, um, then God will have you ready for this. Remember those things which have already been written. And of course that's true. What's written in God's Word we cannot depart from. After she had said these things, she departed, and I did not see where she went. For there came a cloud, and I turned back in fear, supposing that the beast was coming. <laughs> he got double-minded, didn't he? Um, there's some curious things in here, too. Well, I want to read this part to you, because the main exhortation that was given to Hermas to prepare him for the coming of the beast was, Be not double-minded, Hermas. And uh, he received a, an awesome, awesome exhortation. In Mandate 9 in the Shepherd of Hermas, 
The shepherd, of course, was the Lord himself. That's the name usually given to this, this book. <clears throat> Cast off double-mindedness is the name of this mandate. He said to me, Cast off from yourself double-mindedness. Many times it was the shepherd who came and appeared to Hermas who gave him these revelations. Sometimes it was the church, like in the past one. Cast off from yourself double-mindedness and be not at all double-minded about anything, about asking anything from God by saying to yourself, How am I able to ask anything from the Lord and receive it, since I have sinned so much against Him? Well, that's interesting. You know, is, is there anybody among God's people that hasn't sinned against Him? And yet, when Jesus went about doing good, healing all who was oppressed of the devil, for God was with Him, you know, the people of God came to Him. He demanded faith from them. They had a covenant already. He demanded faith from them for their healing or deliverance or whatever, and He gave it to them. They weren't worthy of it, but He gave it to them. And now the Lord is telling Him, don't be double-minded by thinking that how can God answer me? I've been such a sinner. Very interesting. You know, the devil uses condemnation to destroy our faith in God. But there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And it actually was added there. It was added, I say. It was not in the original because there's no numeric pattern. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Because, of course, there's no one that's under condemnation, who is walking in the Spirit. But the problem is, many of us are somewhere in between, <laughs> between the flesh and the Spirit. Now, how in the world do we ever get there if we don't get our prayers answered? And how do we ever get our prayers answered if we're condemned for our foolishness and for our failures? That's the grace of God. And that's what the Lord is exhorting Him to exhort us about. Don't be double-minded. And what did he call being double-minded? Well, to think in yourself, I've been such a failure. How is it that God would answer my prayers? It is by grace. Verse 2. Do not consider these things, but turn to the Lord with all of your heart. That reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians 3. Forget the things which are behind and press forward to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Forget what's behind, just change the future. Okay? And by faith in God, you can do that. Do not consider these things, but turn to the Lord with all of your heart. And without hesitating, ask of Him, and you will know His great compassion, because He will not forsake you, but will fulfill the requests of your soul. Isn't that good? Isn't that great? The Lord is merciful. And he is graceful, and we don't deserve it, but that shouldn't enter into it, according to what the Lord's saying right here. Verse 3, For God is not as men who hold grudges, but he seeks not vengeance, and has compassion on what he has made. So cleanse your heart of all the worthless things of this age, and of all the words which were spoken to you before. And ask of the Lord, and you will receive everything, and all of your requests will be granted if you ask of the Lord without hesitating. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says, and that's exactly what Jesus said. All things whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. That's exactly what Jesus said. Uh, many of you out there that are listening to me, you have the devil has spoken to you these same things. That you're not worthy. You can't expect God to answer your prayers. 
But the Lord is exhorting you through this revelation here. Yes, you can receive from God. We, we have no hope without grace. You know, we can't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Everything that we receive has to come from without. Even the faith to believe has to come from without. Because of our fallen nature, we cannot be expected to be righteous <laughs> before we receive from the Lord. Can you, can you expect to be perfect before you can get anything from God? Well, then you'll never make it. Because the first thing you need from God is righteousness, right? You'll never make it. So forget that. It's self-righteousness and it's foolishness. Ask of the Lord without hesitating. That's what he says. If you hesitate in your heart, you will not receive any of your requests. Well, that's exactly what James 1 said. You know, the double-minded man's unstable in all his ways. Think not that that man shall receive anything from the Lord. For those who hesitate before God, they are double-minded, and they do not obtain any of their requests. That's James 1 and 7 to the T, isn't it? Verse 6. But the ones who are complete in the faith ask for everything, since they have trusted the Lord. They ask for everything. Have you ever had that devil sit on your shoulder and say, The Lord don't want to hear that. He's got more important things to do. <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, when you pray about even the little things, what you're saying is, I trust in you, Lord. I'm not trusting in me. I'm not seeking by my own efforts to bring this to pass. I know this is a trial of my faith, and I trust in you. And since he has ministering spirits sent forth to do service for them that are heirs of salvation, you've got angels right there to take care of it all. Just trust in God. But the ones who are complete in the faith ask for everything since they have trusted the Lord, and they receive it because they ask without hesitating, not being double-minded. For every man who is double-minded, if he does not repent, will be saved with difficulty. Double-minded, of course, is when you listen to the Spirit, and then you listen to the flesh. And you listen to the Spirit, and you listen to the flesh. Right? You have faith, and you have doubt. Double-minded, actually, in James 1 and 7, is two-souled. Two-souled. Schizophrenic, it would be called today. And since we're, we're always, you know, somewhere in the process of sanctification... The process of sanctification is the process of changing your soul to become spiritual, like your spirit is. Your spirit is born of God. If you're born again, you have a born-again spirit. And um, your soul was created to obey your spirit, which obeys God if it's born again. right? Uh, however, the soul is, um, there is the soul of the flesh, or the mind of the flesh. And the mind of the spirit, or the soul of the spirit. And that means, of course, that your soul is divided in its attention. Either in following your spirit, or following your flesh. It's two-souled, it's double-minded. But, you have the authority to say no. You have the authority uh, who you will listen to. You have the authority to cast down vain imaginations that are against God. You have the authority to listen to the spirit. You don't have to be double-minded. So he goes on to say, so cleanse your heart of double-mindedness and put on faith, because it is strong. And trust God, so that you will receive all requests for which you ask. Listen to that. All requests. All requests. All doesn't leave anything out, does it? Jesus said, all things whatsoever you ask in prayer believing, you shall receive. 
It is the Word of God. It sounds too good to be true by most people who read these kind of things. But it is the Word of the Lord. And the very fact that you, it, it seems too good to be true proves that you have double-mindedness. Right? Whenever you ask something from the Lord and you receive the request rather slowly, do not be double-minded. Well, you know this happens all the time, right? People ask something from the Lord and they don't see it happen immediately or the first month or the second month or the third month or even in a year sometimes. He says, when this happens, do not be double-minded. In other words, don't shrink from your faith, your confidence in God. Don't do it. Abraham was a very good example of that, right? He believed for a long, well, he believed and he was double-minded for a long time, frankly. But within about the last year, he finally straightened up his faith and received from the Lord. So whenever you ask something from the Lord and you receive the request rather slowly, do not be double-minded because you did not receive the request of your soul speedily. For in every case, it is because of some temptation or transgression of which you are ignorant that you receive your request so slowly. Well, you know, when you believe God to do something, you're also trusting in Him to work in you. You're also being very careful that you don't offend Him. You know, in the New Testament, sin is different from the Old Testament. Sin in the Old Testament was a transgression against the written law, which made it impossible to be sinless. But in the New Testament, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin to us is sin against the known will of God. Now, um, if we're failing God because we don't have faith, then we... We just need faith. You know, in uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul spoke about his situation in that, and that, and he was being double-minded at first because um, he was looking at himself. He was looking at his failure. And uh, he got a revelation from God. And his revelation was, since the good that I would do, I do not. It's no longer I that do it, but the sin which dwelleth in me. In other words, since he wanted to do good, he wanted to please God, but he was failing. Then it was no longer him. That is him, the spiritual man. Uh, it was instead the sin that dwelled in him. And um, he went on to say in the beginning of chapter 8, there's no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. See, basically God got on Paul's side against the sin in his life. Not against him, against the sin. It's no more I that do it. It's the sin that dwells in me. And uh, he confessed faith. The, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and of death. He confessed his faith. And he said there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. That's what we need to do. If you fail in God, confess your faith. Don't be double-minded. Don't worry about the old man. The Lord's taking care of him. Did you know that? You, you know you don't have a problem with sin anymore? You might have a problem with faith. But you don't have a problem with sin. The sin, the Lord already dealt with. He took it away. He said, reckon yourself to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Consider it done. That's what faith does. Consider it done. So, you may be doing some things that the Lord needs to straighten up, and He will do that. But meanwhile, you have to keep believing. There's nothing else you can do to come to the end of this thing. The revelation that Paul got was, he was going to keep believing because it wasn't him doing it anyway. It was the sin dwelling in him. 
He was going to believe that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made him free from the law of sin and death. He was going to keep on believing that there was no condemnation to him that are in Christ Jesus. See, you're accepting something by faith. You're accepting a gift of God's righteousness by faith. And since you are righteous by faith, you are entitled to the things that you ask of God. So faith is accounted as righteousness. Since you are righteous by faith, faith is accounted as righteousness. Now, of course, we're not talking about those who walk in willful disobedience and use Christ to live in their flesh. They're not doing what Paul was doing. It's not the good that they would do, because they would do evil. And they're walking willful against God. If we sin willfully, there remains no sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, the Bible says. But if you want to please God, you're seeking to please God, you, you hate the old flesh and you hate the, hate the sin, and you want to please Him, then walk by faith, because He is a sufficient Savior. And by the way, even before He's perfected you in holiness, you have a right to the rest of God's benefits, because, because um, faith is accounted as righteousness. So what can you do? You have to walk by faith. No matter how much you've failed, you have to walk by faith to get out of it. The devil knows that. And he tries to do everything to talk you out of it. To tell you that you're not worthy. And to tell you that God didn't hear. And to tell you, look how long you've waited and nothing happened. So you'd be double-minded. Verse 8. So do not cease asking for the request of your soul. And you will receive it. But if you lose heart and become double-minded in your asking... Blame yourself and not the one who gives to you. Hey, we've got doctrines out there that blame God. You know what they say? Well, sometimes God answers and sometimes God says no. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, they got these uh, crazy doctrines, you know. But the Bible says in Second Corinthians chapter 1, um, concerning the promises of God, that uh, the answer of God is yes. It's always yes concerning His promises. Not no. So, he says, blame yourself if you get double-minded and don't blame the one who gives you. And that, See, God gets all the blame when people don't receive things. But think about the times when Jesus' disciples, who had been trained by the very best, <laughs> came back to him and, and wondered why they didn't receive results for their faith. And he said, because of your unbelief. He didn't say, because you were unworthy, or because you failed me, or because you sinned. He said, because of your unbelief, consistently, be it unto you according to your faith. So, But often people don't receive answers, and they say, well, it wasn't the will of God for me to have this. Or, it wasn't the will of God because of this or that, you know. Well, quite often, folks, it's because of unbelief. Verse 9, walk out, oh, excuse me, watch out for this double-mindedness, for it is evil and foolish and it uproots many from the faith. True. Even those who are very faithful and strong. For this double-mindedness is also the daughter of the devil. And does much evil among the servants of God. So despise double-mindedness. And overcome it in every case. Putting on a faith that is strong and powerful. For faith promises all things. Perfects all things. But double-mindedness which does not trust itself, fails in all that it does. So you see, he said, 
that faith is from above, from the Lord, and has great power. But double-mindedness is an earthly spirit from the devil, which has no power. So serve faith, which has power, and refrain from double-mindedness, which has no power, and you will live to God, and all who are so disposed will live to God. Well, he definitely exhorted over and over against double-mindedness there, didn't he? And it's true today. We have a great tribulation coming upon us. God's giving us the signs so that we won't be taken by surprise. And uh, we know it's coming, and we should be prepared by casting down vain imaginations about saving ourselves, preparing for ourselves, or sin in our life. All such things is what the Lord has already taken care of and already provided for us. And um, learn to walk by faith now and prepare for these things that are coming. Now, Hermas wasn't, I wouldn't say, very much prepared because he immediately became double-minded when he saw the, the dragon or the beast or whatever it was and um, had to be reminded of the Lord. But when he did act on his faith, um, he found out it wasn't going as terrible as what it could have been. You know, um, the devil is seeking whom he may devour. And, and may means permission. You know, it involves permission, and it involves your permission. Quite often the devil devours people because of their unbelief. We found out that God would send those plagues to the double-minded. Meaning, of course, because of their, their double-mindedness, they're giving the devil permission to take advantage of them. And uh, the dragon will devour many. So we need to learn to walk by faith in God's promises. We need to put them down in our heart. They are the best provision we can possibly have for the things that are coming upon the world. As we saw, America is going to very much change its nature. It's going to be turned over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Have you ever read that? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It was talking about a man who had his father's wife. Well, you know the father's wife is, don't you? <laughs> so, listen, not only does God turn individuals over to Satan for destruction of the flesh, he turns nations over for the destruction of the flesh. And um, there's quite a bit of flesh in America. You know, I'm just thinking of that man in 1 Corinthians 5. I don't know what form it was that the devil took him over, but we do know it was one form or another. And we know that what's going to happen to America, folks, is for seven years it's going to lose its mind. This government is going to go be very foolish and uh, seek to save themselves by destroying the rest of the world. You know, they're going to quite, quite uh, freely use up their nukes on different nations that disagree with them, not caring for the life of the people, not caring, folks, that that You know, for instance, let me point out something to you about Iran. You've got an illegitimate regime running that country. They cheated in the vote process. They cheated every way they could. They made laws to kick out the rest of the dissidents from their government so that the only people that ruled would be these, these mullahs, these radical mullahs, you know. Uh, they are... A lot of their country disagrees totally, but there's not much they can do about it, with their government. 
And now we just read that their government is doing this on the sly. The people, a lot of the people don't even know what they're doing. They're doing a lot of this on the sly. Well, you know, they're going to go over there and wipe out an awful lot of people that are not guilty. I mean, everyone's guilty. Don't get me wrong. There is nobody on planet Earth that's not guilty. And uh, we all really deserve to die. And there is a flood coming that's going to prove that. But in the natural, there's a lot of people over there. They're just ignorant. I mean, they don't. I mean, they're they're uh, they've been trained to be patriotic, of course, and they will defend their nation. And 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 I guess if they don't do it over there, it's a little different than over here. I mean, they'll they'll do more than put you in jail over there. They'll probably shoot you, you know. So they will defend their nation, and they many of them will die not knowing the Lord, in their ignorance, having been taken in bondage by Satan himself. You know, you have to pity people like that. But, you know, America, they don't, they're not going to have pity. Uh, just like the Iranians are not going to have pity. You know, the world don't know much about pity, and they don't have, know much about grace, you know. We're the only ones that really should be having the understanding of grace and, and pity for those who are in bondage to Satan. You know, the Bible tells us not to dare judge those that are without. Those that are without, God judges. And um, we we don't judge them because they haven't been given grace of God through faith to see and to partake of God's mercy and His benefits and, and understanding and all these things. So we have to be very merciful towards those people. In fact, I exhort you to pray for the Iranians, folks. You know, an Iranian that gets saved is just as good as an American that gets saved. <laughs> you know, don't fall into that delusion. God's got people all the way around the world, right? Pray for these people because no doubt, there is no doubt that through these great tribulations, many will become Christians. Many in foreign lands will become Christians. And it's not going to be because of the example of the United States it's going to be because of the example of God's people and because of the grace that they and the love that they share with people see we're to, we're to um, love our enemies you know this um, we're to overcome evil with good we can't judge them we have to love them but America's not going to be that way and I might add that a lot of radical American Christians are not going to be that way towards these people and it's sad because this is, you know, what our Lord Jesus has commanded in the, in the um, Sermon on the Mount. And yet it's totally ignored. But this is how people are impressed with Christianity. They're impressed with our love, with our faith, with the provision that God gives to His people. I mean, they're impressed with your healings. They're impressed with your provisions that God has given to you through your faith. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have false gods, and they're impressed when they run into real Christians and find that they get answers to prayer, supernatural answers to prayer. That kind of reveals to them you really have a God who answers, and that there is a God who is concerned. And, um, you know, it's sad that what they no normally run into is not a Christian at all. It's somebody that's claiming to be a Christian. So, yeah, the world is going to fall all apart. It's going to be fighting one against another. America is, in a way, going to be turned over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved the day of the Lord. You know who the spirit is in America, don't you? It's God's elect. 
And great chastenings are coming over America, and, and, my, and demon possession is coming over America. Revelation 18 tells us that Babylon is going to be filled with all these demons. And what's the purpose? It's, uh, it's so that people in darkness and in bondage will run to the light. And who's got the light? Well, if we uh, agree with the word, and uh, we are uh, represent our Lord to the world with his promises and with his blessings and provisions, then then we are the light. And they will run to us. And uh, But if we're like the world because of a patriotic spirit or because um, we, we wrestle with flesh and blood instead of principalities and powers, they're not going to see any light in us. So we need to get prepared. You know, the Lord is putting us into a situation where it's a cross to our old man. He's putting us into a position of being weak, actually, because he's told us, resist not the evil and love your enemies. And yet he's raising up a, a bitter enemy all around us. And he's giving us this opportunity, you know, to, we're being tried. We're going to be tested. You know, um, Hermas basically um, approached the beast in faith. You know, after he cast down double-mindedness and uh, the beast wasn't used to uh, judge him or destroy him because he was walking by faith and because he was accounted righteous. And so it'll be the same with us, folks. We just need to walk by faith in our God, cast down all that double-mindedness. And part of that is going to be the way we react to the people around us. If you If you retaliate with the way of the world, that's sin. That's contrary to our Lord's commandments. And um, if you lean upon your own understanding and you do things the way of the worldly church, that's sin. Read the New Testament. Make sure you're right with God. Make sure you're committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ and not a disciple of apostate Christianity, especially Americanized apostate Christianity. Okay, We have... In order to be a disciple of Jesus, we, we have to obey what he said. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? So there are many people who are loosely called Christians, and they are not. And they will not escape. God will send his plagues to the double-minded, just like he said in that revelation there. They will not escape this judgment. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I enter into your gates with thanksgiving, and I enter into your courts with praise. And I bless your name, Lord, for you are great, and you're greatly to be praised. Father, I worship your holy name, and I stand before your throne of grace, and I thank you for your goodness and your mercy upon our lives, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for watching over our lives and for your protection upon us, Lord, and the protection of the blood of Jesus. And I thank you, Father God, for your word, because your word is the standard by which we live by. And I thank you, Father, for the faith that you've given us in your word and that we would confess your word. And I thank you for it, Father. And Lord, Lord anoint us today to give out this message that Jesus really does still heal. And I thank you for it. Jesus' name. Well, that's what I want to talk about. You know, I believe that it is in the plan of the Father that no believer 
should ever be sick, that he should live his full length of time here on earth and actually wear out and then fall asleep. It's not the Father's will that we should suffer with cancer and other, uh, and all the other things that, that hinders our walk and that brings pain and anguish to our bodies. When you look at Isaiah 53, it gives us a picture of the coming Messiah and it's real graphic in its description of it. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with disease. And as one from whom men hide their faith, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our sicknesses and carried our diseases, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Folks, this scripture right here has to do with the disease problem that confronts the church today as well as the sin problem. It says, He has borne our sicknesses and our diseases. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted with our diseases. Folks, it was God who laid our diseases on Jesus. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath made him sick. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God made him sick with our sickness. He was afflicted with our disease. And as to our sins, verse 5, he says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He dealt with man's body and with his soul and spirit. He laid our iniquities and our diseases on Jesus. He says he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted with our diseases and our sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's already healed you. In the, in the mind of the Father, you are already healed. Jesus knows that he bore your diseases and how it has to hurt him to hear you talk about bearing them yourself. Learn to say it this way. I am healed because he did that work and satisfied the Supreme Court of the universe. That makes you free. Sin shall not lord it over you because you're a new creation in Christ. When were you healed? When Jesus defeated Satan and stripped him of his authority and resurrected up to the right hand of the Father, that's when you were healed. And following the temptation that it talks about in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 24, he went down out of the mountain and the multitudes thronged him. Matthew 4 and 24. And the report of him went forth into all Syria, and they brought unto him all that were sick, holding with diverse diseases and torments, possessed with demons and epileptic and palsied, and he healed them. In every contact of Jesus with the people, he healed their sick, and he didn't turn anybody away. Everybody was healed. Now, there's some out there that have us believe that there are some cases which are not the will of the Father to heal. Yet those same people will go out and take medicine Send for a doctor when they declare it's not the will of God to heal them. Wonder why that is. 
Well, the fact is, there's not a case, any cases, that are not the will of the Father to heal. And it's not the Father's will that any die of diseases. Sickness does not belong in the body of Christ because it's not, shouldn't be normal or natural. When Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, he, meant, he meant that we are united with him as closely and vitally as the branches connected to the vine. Now you can understand why Jesus couldn't have cancer or tuberculosis or pneumonia or COVID-19 or any of those deadly diseases. He is the vine. We as the branches ought not to have these things either. It should not be normal for believers to be in bondage to poverty either so that they have to go to the world for help. And also it ought not to be normal for them to go to physicians for healing. The believer, the believer is of God, and he's been redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. He has the very nature and life of God in him. He is the righteousness of God in Christ. And he's not only redeemed out of the hand of Satan, made a new Christian, but he stands in the Father's presence without the sense of guilt or condemnation. Glory to God. He has the same liberty and freedom with the Father now that he will have after death when he goes to heaven. Praise God. He stands before the Father now as Jesus stood before him. And the Father's love nature has taken the place of the nature of Satan in his life. He's no longer afraid of diseases or adverse circumstances that come up before him. And he's not filled with fear and bondage either because the Son has made him free. Perfect love has cast out fear. He's filled with the nature and life of God, and God's nature is love, glory to God. There's no ground for disease and sickness, folks, in the body of Christ. These new creations are the sons of God. They're heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. They've got God dwelling in them. They have the life and nature of God and God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, has made his home in our bodies. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through his Spirit that dwells in you. Glory to God. In the ministry of Jesus, there was a perfect coordination between himself and the Father. Jesus' attitude toward disease and sin was the Father's attitude. He lived among the Jews, God's covenant people, and he healed their diseases. He broke Satan's dominion over them individually. When he went to the cross, he became their substitute. He became their sin bearer. He became their disease bearer. And when he was nailed to that cross, Isaiah 53 became a reality, and more, and more so with 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bare our sins in his body upon the tree that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. That's past it. And it was the hand of justice that fell on him as our substitute, as he bore away our diseases. 
Now, this is real important to every believer. When Jesus was bidding goodbye to the disciples, as recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Folks, all authority had been given unto Jesus in heaven and on earth. He didn't need authority. He always had it. And why was it given to him now that he was leaving the earth? Well, it was given to him because he was the head of the church. He was the firstborn from among the dead. He was the Lord of the church. The church was to be his body. And he was to use that authority through the church. All the authority that had been given to him was for the benefit of the church. And if there's no way for the church to use it, then its ability is likely, it's like a, 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 a unused capital that we've got laying around. The church has buried the all authority that God gave to Jesus in his theology and creeds. No one seems to have been able to reach it. And it ain't doing anybody any good. The church doesn't seem to know that before Jesus went away, he gave the power of attorney to use his name to them. This power of attorney gives to the believer access to that all authority he talked about. Whatsoever you shall ask, and that word in the Greek means demand, in my name that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, that will I do. Folks, this ain't prayer here. It is the use of name, uh, the, the name of Jesus to draw on this authority, this all authority that he gave us. And the book of Acts gives case after case where men tapped into that all authority and men were blessed by it. Folks, that all authority is still available. It's still available to those who use the name of Jesus. That authority has never been withdrawn. If one little part of that great commission has been done away with, then all of it's been set aside. If one miracle has been set aside, then all miracles have been set aside, and the name of Jesus has no authority. But we know that his name was given to us for God's miracle work, right? Jesus said in Mark 16, 18 through 20, In my name shall they cast out demons, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall in no wise hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Every one of these five things are things that the adversary brings upon the church of God and the unsaved world. Five miraculous manifestations are to take place, folks. Satan holds men in bondage, fills them with fear of poison. Satan has robbed them of their testimony so that they no longer speak in new tongues of deliverance and victory. And they have been robbed of the ability to lay hands on the sick and see their loved ones recover. Why is that? Because sense knowledge has gained its mastery over the ministry nowadays. Jesus said, that as soon as men believed on him, at once these signs should accompany them. At once they began to cast out demons. 
At once, they're supposed to speak with tongues of power. At once, they master diseases. Serpents are, uh, folks are typical of disease and demons. Verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken unto them, was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that follow. The word that he had spoken and the word they dared to confess was confirmed by signs that followed. Did you know that God's attitude towards sin and disease has never changed? Hebrews 13 and 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was opposed to disease then. He is opposed to disease now. He suffered on account of sin, and his attitude towards sin now is just like it was back then. The seated Christ is a receipt in full for your healing. The seated Christ proves that he finished his work. And always think of Satan as the defeated one as the one over whom you in Jesus' name have dominion. In that name, the new creation is the master of demons and disease in every circumstance that would hold you in bondage. We have a perfect redemption. We have a perfect new creation and perfect union with Christ. He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. We have a message that brings success, health, happiness, and victory to every man. Every man is a failure outside of Christ. And we hold God's solution to the human problem. The living word in your lips makes you a victor. It makes disease and poverty your servants. The living word in your lips brings God on the scene, brings victory and joy and success to the defeated. In God's revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle Paul, we see the supernatural element of Christianity in a light that the modern church has never seen. Paul's revelation begins with Jesus being made sin. It deals with what he did and what was done to him during those three days and three nights until finally he resurrected from the dead, carried his blood into the heavenly holy of holies and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that period covers the 40 days from his crucifixion to his seating at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it deals with three major facts. What God did for us in Christ in the great substitution, what the Holy Spirit through the word can do in us in the new creation, and what Jesus is doing for us now at the right hand of the Father. Now, I want you to know, and it's real important that you grasp these basic facts. Christ did not rise from the dead until he had broken Satan's dominion, and it was imperative that Satan's authority over man be broken. Christ did not rise from the dead until he had conquered the adversary. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, Who delivered us out of the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have our redemption, the remission of our sin. He delivered us out of Satan's authority. He translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Folks, that's the new birth. That is recreation. We have our redemption. Every believer has been delivered out of Satan's authority and has been translated into the family of God and has his redemption in Christ. He's redeemed. Satan has no more dominion over him. 
Romans 6 and 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin is Satan. Satan shall not lord it over you. Satan has no more dominion over the believer than Pharaoh had over the children of Israel after they had crossed the Red Sea. Satan got, he don't have any dominion over you. Satan can't put diseases upon you without your consent. And it may be a consent of ignorance, but it's a consent. Folks, Satan is defeated. He's conquered as far as you are concerned. Satan is not only conquered, but God has made you a new creation over whom Satan has no dominion whatsoever. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 17 and 18 said, Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. But all these things are of God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Those old things are the things of defeat, failure, weakness, poverty, sin, and spiritual death. Folks, we're new creation. Jesus is the head of this new creation. He is the Lord of this new creation. He has taken Satan's place. Satan no longer has dominion over you. You should have no fear of him, for he's already been conquered. Glory to God. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against it? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ Jesus that died. Yea, rather, that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Even as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We were accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God forevermore. The Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, gives us the position of the church, and he climaxes it over in the 37th verse when he says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We have, folks, a complete and perfect redemption. This new creation has not only been declared righteous and been made righteous, but both God and Jesus declare that they or his righteousness. Righteousness means the ability to stand in the Father's presence without a sense of guilt, with the same freedom and liberty that Jesus has. Why? Because of Romans 3.26 declares this, For the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. Folks, God has become your righteousness in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 and 30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who was made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God has made Jesus to be righteousness unto you. 
And that's an amazing thing right there in itself. And he don't stop there. Look in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, if language means anything, then every believer stands complete in Christ. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 said, And in him ye are made full. That means complete. Who is the head of all principality and power. John 1.16 Of his fullness or completeness have we all received and grace upon grace. Folks, the believer is not a lowly petitioner begging for favors. He is a son of the living God, an heir of God, a prince of God. He stands in the Father's presence, unabashed, unafraid, made righteous with God's own righteousness, and made free with God's own freedom. Glory to God. The Son has made you free. You are free in reality. Disease and sickness has no dominion over you. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21 says this, Knowing that ye were redeemed, not with corruptible things, with silver or gold, from your vain manner of life handed down from your father, but with precious blood, as of a lamb without spot, even the blood of Christ, who was foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, but was manifested at the end of the times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, that raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope might be in God. You're not only redeemed, you're not only a new creation and the righteousness of God, but you are a son of God in his family. More than that, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead actually makes his home in your body. That's your temple. You may never have given him his place, or you may never have been conscious that God made his home in you, or that you had the ability of God in you. You might, you might not have ever taken advantage of the fact that your mind might be renewed to the extent that you might know the will of God in reality. Not only do you have God in you, but you have the name of Jesus with the authority that God gave to Jesus in it. And in that name, you can lay hands on yourself if pain comes and receive your deliverance right there. In that name, you can break the power of the adversary over your finances, over your home, over your loved ones' bodies. Limitless power and authority are given to the individual member of the body of Christ. And uh, perhaps the most subtle and dangerous weapons of the devil are the sense of unworthiness and the sense of lack of faith. Your worthiness is Jesus Christ. He's the righteous. You are the righteousness of God in him. The sense of unworthiness is a denial of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ and of your standing in Christ and of Christ's righteousness before the Father, which has been granted to you. <clears throat> Another hindrance is that you have accepted hope and mental assent instead of faith. You never hope for a thing that you possess. You hope for the unpossessed. When you hope for your healing, it means that you have no faith in it, but you expect to get it sometime down the road. Hope is a beautiful delusion. 
mental assent is a kindred hope. Mental assent is the substitute that the adversary has given to the church today for faith. A lot of people declare that the whole Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation, but they don't accept miracles except in isolated cases. They assent to the truth of the word, but they don't believe it. They say, yes, I believe the Bible is true, but they never act on it. Folks believing is acting on the word of God. There ain't no faith without actions. James chapter 2 and verse 18 says, <clears throat> but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my work. James tells us that there has to be corresponding actions with our faith. And there can be no faith without action on the word. I can assent to it and remain just like I am. I can admire it, but it's not mine. The thing that the scripture declares belongs to you. As soon as you find out the difference between mental assent and faith, you can become a blessing to multitudes. Many have been healed when they stopped mentally assenting and then acted on the word. Now, another enemy of faith is sense knowledge. A man believes what he can see. He's just like Thomas, who said, I will not believe unless I can put my hand into his side. But Jesus suddenly appeared, and he said in John 20, 27, Reach hither thy hand and put it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Faith is giving substance to things you have hoped for. It is a conviction of the reality of things that are not seen. Faith is changing hope into reality. Faith is acting in the face of contrary evidence. The senses declare it can't be, but faith shouts above the turmoil. It is. Faith counts the thing done before God has acted. And that compels God's action. God is a faith God. Hebrews 11 and 3, the worlds were created by the word of God so that the things that are seen are not made out of things which do appear. All God did at the beginning was to say, let there be. And there it was. All that faith has to say is let there be perfect quietness in this man's body and spirit. And that disease has to go. Faith says, let there be plenty where poverty has reigned. Let there be freedom when bondage was, has held sway. These things have to come to pass. These pains and afflictions you're suffering were laid on Jesus. Jesus actually bore them, just as he bore your sin. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for your transgression. He was bruised for your iniquity. The chastisement of your peace was upon him, and with his stripes you are healed. God actually laid your iniquities upon Jesus. Then you don't have to bear them. He made him sin with your sin that you might be the righteousness of God in Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. He made him sick with your diseases that you might be perfectly well in Christ. Folks, it's a gift. Healing is yours now. All you need to do is thank him for it. God put your diseases on Jesus. He bore them 
He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted with your diseases. Satan has no right to put on you what God put on Jesus. When your heart comes to know this, as you know other facts of life, you're through with sicknesses. You can't be sick when you come to know this fact. And know it as you know that God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Folks, in Romans 6 and 14, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. That's yours today. Sickness and pain are things of the past. For whom the Son sets free is free in reality. If he has set you free from sin, sin has no dominion over you. If he sets you free from diseases, it must not lord it over you. If he has set you free from Satan, Satan has no dominion over you. If he has set you free from circumstances, circumstances can't lord it over you any longer. And how they have held us in bondage over us in the past. Now, folks, we belong to a new order of things. We are the masters of circumstances, of demons, and of diseases. Sin and demons have no dominion over us. The Son has set us free. And in God's sight, we are free. In Jesus' sight, we are free. And according to the word of God, we are free. Stand fast in the liberty that Christ has made you free. Hold fast to this confession. Make it your very own. Take your place. Act apart. Refuse to allow Satan to have anything to do with this body in which you live. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20 says, Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Or know ye not that he that is joined to a harlot is one body? For the twain saith he shall become one flesh. Verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. Or know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? which you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. It's God's place. You are the overseer living in it. You are to see that Satan does not trespass on God's property. Jesus said, In my name you shall cast out demons. Jesus has given us the right to use his name. And that name can break the power of disease, the power of the adversary. That name can stop disease and failure from reigning over you. Because there is no disease that has ever come to man which this name cannot destroy. Our confession is our faith speaking. That name and Jesus are one, just as your name is one with you. You do not have to make this liberty yours. All you have to do is enjoy it and walk in the light of the word. Make these facts your confession. You're supposed to tell the world that by his stripes you were healed. That disease has lost its dominion, that it can no longer lord it over you. And if we speak words of faith instead of words of doubt, we'll be speaking God's language. Doubt words come from another source. You can't walk. And you can't talk sickness and disease and walk in health. 
You can't tell folks about your diseases and about your pains and moan over your troubles to get sympathy without losing your fellowship with him. When we tell our troubles to people, we lose our faith and sweet fellowship with the Father. We tell people our troubles to get their sympathy. We ought to cast out our anxiety and troubles, all of it, upon him because he cares for us. When we talk about our weakness and failure and disease, we glorify the devil who gave them to us. And we glorify doctors and lawyers by taking our troubles to them. They get paid for listening to people's troubles. That's the secret of their success, being good trouble listeners. Telling our troubles that are caused by Satan is a confession that Satan is the master, that he has gained the supremacy. It makes the troubles bigger, it makes the disease worse, and it makes us feel worse too. The real confession in our lives ought to be of God's ability, his faithfulness, and that our troubles are being borne by Jesus just as he bore our diseases and sin. Folks, hold fast to your confession of what God is to you and what you are in Christ. Give up your confession of Satan's supremacy. You know that disease comes from the adversary, that lack of ability comes from the adversary, and all our troubles are demon-made. And if you're using demon-inspired words, you can't expect to have the sweetest fellowship with heaven. It is the word of faith which we speak. Our lips are filled with the word of faith. Our hearts are singing the song of faith. John six forty seven says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes hath eternal life. Folks, it is the believer who possesses. And he, he possesses, I believe I have. Then I rejoice in my possession. I enjoy my possession. Health is my possession. Success is my possession. I have plenty because he is my supply. He meets every need of mine according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I am not moaning and groaning. I am praising and rejoicing. Faith possesses. Faith possessions are real, just as real as sense possession. Spiritual things are as real as material things. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 said, For we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk in the realm of God. We not only walk by faith, but we talk by faith. We have left the realm of the senses. Praise God forevermore. When you learn to talk by faith, the dominion of disease is broken away from you. But just as long as you walk by reason and you follow the suggestions of the senses, feeding, seeing, tasting, you will live and walk in bondage where disease will hold captive over your life and pain will hold you captive in your body. And if you'll learn how to talk faith talk, you'll be a victor. First John chapter 5 and verses 4 and 5 ought to be known by every believer. It ought to be part of your conscious knowledge that you can use every day. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, For whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You know what's begotten of God? The new creation is begotten of God. Righteousness is begotten of God. Life is begotten of God. Faith is begotten of God. These are the overcomers of the world. Verse 5, who is he that overcometh the world but he that believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. You believe that? That means you are a victor. The believers are the winners. So folks, leave that low life of doubt and fear and come out into the high life and walk in fellowship with him. Healing and victory are yours, folks. Leave failure to failures. We're walking with the power of God, fighting with the weapons of righteousness, both for attack and for defense. Romans 8 and 37 says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Why is that? Because we are raised together with Christ. And when Jesus arose from the dead, it was our victory over the enemy. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Having despoiled, or that word means violently disarmed, the principalities and the powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And you remember that we were crucified with him, we died with him, we're buried with him, we suffered with him, and were justified with him, made alive with him. Then we met the enemy, and we conquered him in Christ. So Paul can say to us, wherein also you were made partakers of his righteousness through your faith in God who raised him from the dead. And God raised Christ so that we might share in his life. We were made partakers in Christ's resurrection victory. Christ's resurrection life and Christ's resurrection new creation. Of his fullness have all we received. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now here's the foundation for faith. That's the living word of God. What God says is. What man says may be. What God says is never maybe. It is always made good. God's word is a part of himself, just as your word is a part of you. What you say reveals the real you. People come to trust in the you in your voice. Your voice and your words are you. Jesus was God's voice. What Jesus said, the Father said. Jesus was the Logos, the word of God. And when you read what Jesus said or you hear it read, you're hearing God. You're hearing the living word of God. God is back of what he has spoken. The throne of God is back of what he has spoken. God's character and Jesus' character are involved in what the Father or Jesus has spoken. So when he says, surely he hath borne our sickness and carried our diseases, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, we know that our diseases were laid on him. And when he climaxes that statement with, by his stripes we are healed, we know that we're healed. It is a problem of the integrity of the word. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That solves the sin problem right there. Hebrews 9 and 26 says, But now, once at the end of the ages, hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sin problem, folks, is a subtle problem because God said it was settled. Disease and sickness problems are settled because God said that he had settled them. 
He bore the diseases. God says, by his stripes you were healed. So that ought to end the discussion right there. He said the issue was closed. The disease have been put away. So sickness and the disease shall not lord it over you. He said in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. Disease has no standing with the new creation. That should be your de declaration. That statement is a part of himself. He says you are a new creation. He says that you are his son born from above. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And that is a statement of fact right there. Sin and disease are one. They cannot dominate the new creation. You are not only his son, but you are a joint heir with Jesus. You are in joint fellowship in all that Christ did and is. And this verse shows how near you are to him. It says, I am the vine. You are the branches. God is a part of what he said. In Christ, you are what he says you are. You are a new creation created in Christ. And it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And that's to the new creation. What God says is, if you're a new creation, then there is no condemnation for you. If there is no condemnation, disease can't lord it over you. And if you have committed sins and you confess them, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You are forgiven. What God says is, and you don't need to make this yours. It was written for you. Just act on it. It's like God. It is a part of God. If he says he has forgiven you, he's forgiven you, folks. What he has forgiven, he forgets. It is though it had never been. There is no memory of it. You stand as free as Jesus is in the Father's presence. And our faulty vision caused by sense knowledge has made us see as through a glass darkly. The word has been obscured we have not been able to catch God's dream of the reality of it yet. And the reality of it has never dawned upon the church. They have never realized that they were free from the dominion of Satan. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 said, Who delivered us out of the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have our redemption the remission of our sins. Folks, we are delivered out of the authority of Satan. We are translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We are in the kingdom. We are members of it. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Satan's dominion is ended, folks. We're free, absolutely delivered from it. What God says is we are redeemed. Not only do we have a perfect redemption, but we have a perfect remission of our sin. Remission has to do with what we did <clears throat> before we were born again. Forgiveness has to do with, with what we do after we're born again. Remission is the wiping out of everything connected with our old life. There are no hangovers in the divine life. You are absolutely a new creation. There are no sin scars on you. You are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. 
You are the righteousness of God created in Christ Jesus. You are complete in him. What God has made righteous is righteous, folks. And what God has declared righteous is righteous. <clears throat> what Jesus made righteous in his substitutionary sacrifice is just what God says it is. A completed, perfect thing in his sight. When the believer, in the quietness of his own spirit, recognizes the integrity of the word of God, disease and sickness and failure are all the things of the past. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, You are of God, my little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The power and ability of God is in you right now. You stand a victor in every combat. You have no apologies to make for weaknesses. God is the strength of your life. What God says is, there's no supposition about it. It is an absolute present tense reality. And if he says you're more than a conqueror, you are. It don't make any difference how mighty the force against you might be. It makes no difference what sense knowledge has told you. You cast down reasonings and give the word of God its place. And you act as though there were not an enemy in the world. When he says, my God shall supply every need of yours, you're not afraid to do anything he tells you to do. The money's going to be there. And it's going to meet every obligation that you have. Because God cannot lie. His word is a part of himself, and he and his word are one. He watches over his word to perform it. He is utterly jealous over his word. He watches over it with the utmost care. And all you need to do is to call his attention to what he has promised, and he will make the promises good. God's word has the ability in it to make good anything he has promised. The Logos of God is a living thing. It produces in the heart of man the very thing he promises it would do. He, we preach it and teach it because it is the living word today. God says in Romans 10 and 11, Whatsoever believeth in him shall not be put to shame. The word is lifeless until faith is breathed into it on our own lips. Then, it becomes a supernatural force, glory to God. You might have entire chapters of the word committed to memory, but they lie dead in your life. And as you act on the word, it becomes a living thing. And then as you witness, make your confession of that word, it becomes a dominating force in your lips. Jesus's word was the father's, but he spoke it, he lived it, and he acted it. That made it a living thing. He said in John chapter 12, verses 49 through 50, For I spake not from myself, but the Father that sent me. He hath given me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life eternal. The things therefore which I speak, and even as the Father has said unto me, so I speak. And then John chapter 6, verse 63. The words that I have spoken unto you are spirit and are life. We take Jesus' words and we act on them. That makes them live. Well, I'm out of time. God bless you. We'll see you again next week. God willing. 
For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels, Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. My thirsting soul, pure as water, made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus. I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus. Jesus, my Lord Jesus. 